John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed Omnibus Addenda, Volume 16, Entry 1387.DE0228, Certificate Number 16697, Vending Machines. Uh, this is a very old Omnibus. This goes way back. This is one of the early shows, but uh, but James... 2018. James recently wrote, wrote to point out to us that we talked about the Automat a lot yes. in that show, you know, the place where you could... I sure do. There'd be meals behind glass, and you would put in your... Basically, the whole restaurant was a big vending machine. Yes. You'd put in your coins, and the thing would come out of the window at you. Did you know that the Automat is back? What? James pointed out to us that as a pandemic-era fad, Automats have started reappearing. Oh, what a smart thing. There's one in Jersey City now that it is, in fact, called the called Automat Kitchen. Which makes me think either they have the rights to the name or Automat is now public domain. genericized trademark. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, you can imagine exactly how it would work and why it would be perfect in our age of takeout. Is it still jello and uh, fruit salad and, and uh, I guess, like chicken fried steak? I can't tell what's behind these things in the picture. You don't actually see them. The cubbies are now opaque. You, uh, you now you go in and order on a little console with a QR code. Uh huh. You know, so th- that step is now purely digital. So you're seeing virtual pictures of the chicken pot pie or whatever. Oh, weird. And then, so you don't just go open a random door and pull your thing out. You do. It's still an, but it's like it's more like an Amazon locker where uh-huh. the, you tell the computer what you want to eat, and then the appropriate cubby opens for you. Oh, so it's al- it's almost maybe a little more magical. You don't get the the window shopping fun. Right. But you do get the, ooh, which magician's door will open and give me my, my pho. Oh, that's kind of fun. Yeah, I like that. So, yeah, like maybe we were explaining automats for no reason. Maybe we're explaining automats to a future that has no restaurants. <laughs> Futurelings know all about them. They have eaten at no other kind of restaurant. Well, what was nice about the old style was that uh, sometimes when you opened the door, you caught a glimpse of someone in a white jacket. Walking behind the automat, you could see them back there feeding the feeding the the Jello bowls into the slots. Now you would never see that because it's all robots. It's all robots, yeah. Entry five two four dot JB three seven zero nine. Certificate number four one two two zero. Geomagnetic reversal. This is going back to another blast from the past. Specifically, 42,000 years in the past, the last time that 
the direction of Earth's magnetic field changed so that the North Pole was suddenly in Antarctica right. for about 800 years. And then, you know, so flipped back around. compasses pointed south for 800 years and then flipped back around. There were no compasses. Not then. Time travelers visiting the era, please note, your compass will point the wrong way. That, uh, that happens apparently in storms. Um, oh, really? If there's it, enough, if there's enough charge in a cloud in the old, in the old, uh, wooden ship sailing days in a, in a very like powerful electrical storm, it could like joink all the, all the, uh, the compasses and they would never return. They'd oh. get zapped and couldn't be, couldn't be unzapped. Did they try unplugging them and then plugging them back hmm. in? Maybe that wasn't a technology yet. What do you think there was a bosun that was effectively the IT guy who's like, have you tried taking the yeah. needle out and putting her back in you again? Shake it, shake it, shake it. <laughs> uh, this most recent geomagnetic magnetic reversal has been in the news here in early 2021 because of some Austra- an Australian researcher group finding that they, they ended up studying the tree rings in very, very old fossilized New Zealand trees right. to see what exactly would have happened to the environment around 40,000 years ago when this flip happened. So they're not discovering other instances of geomagnetic reversal. They're looking at... They're looking the, at the effects of the last oh, known yeah. one. Okay. And judging by the radiocarbon levels in various, you know, in, in, at that time, they now believe there was a real spike in atmospheric radiation. Why? The Earth's magnetic field collapses, so more solar wind oh, sure. gets to us. More little weird particles. Um so what they're suggesting here is you know, massive weather changes, you know, high energy pump particles bombard the earth. So uh, when we did the show, we kind of speculated, like, would anybody on earth even notice? But this research seems to indicate that it would be a death event, an extinction event. And in fact, the timeline works to tie this into the extinction of Neanderthals. Whoa. If you ever wondered why... The uh, you know our ancestors survived and their cousins of the Neanderthals did not. This new finding suggests that uh, the Neanderthals were not smart enough to get in out of the rain. Wow! Basically, the Celts had umbrellas. <laughs> right, the Celts had umbrellas. Well, the Celts may have just gone into caves. The researchers note that this is also about the same time. There's a big flourishing of cave art. Huh. And at first, I thought, wait, are they saying that the the high energy ionizing Particles are just like the monolith in 2001, and they made the they made the cavemen smart, and not, suddenly oh, they all turned into tool users. Maybe that's what it was. I think it's more like they, they just had a, they just had a lot of time to spend inside. Oh. Like maybe all those red handprints are like them trying out the red goop that they put on their backs to survive hunting trips out into their apocalyptic world. I wonder what that would have looked like. Did the did it all of a sudden? Get 10 degrees hotter? It doesn't seem like the fossil record is saying that, right? It, they could just tell that the the UV rays were giving them sunburns? I guess they're speculating that um, there there's other ev- evidence of climate change at this time. Uh, ice sheet growth in North America, so cooling temperatures, I guess maybe caused by more, you know, storm systems getting crazier, wind belts changing, more cloud cover. Right. It got cooler. Right. Basically. And yeah, that no, that would be enough to disrupt Neanderthal hunting. Right. Um, and in the meantime, 
homo whoever. What, what would sapiens. Er, what would early man have been at this time? Is it homo sapiens yet? Yeah, I think so. Well, they, they would have been. What, how long ago was this? 40,000 years oh, ago. Oh, yeah, homo sapiens for sure. You remember. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, my uh, my mom is very proud to say that my family has an unusual amount of Neanderthal DNA. That proves that you guys were the open-minded ones who were willing to basically have, have sex with other species. That's right. That's right. Still. <laughs> it's a it's a Roderick family tradition. And that's just because you're from Wales, though. Yeah, that's right. Entry 771.PS2509. Certificate number 37241. Joe Meek. Now, I don't remember this, but Brian, who's apparently a little behind, wanted to correct some errata from the Joe Meek episode Mm -hmm. about bass guitars. Oh, yeah. I could have told you he was a bass player. (laughs) What? (laughs) That's just how they are. Because his name was Brian? No, 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 no. Just that, oh, somebody's got something to say about uh, like a recording uh, episode. And maybe that he's science? and maybe that he's years behind and or months behind in listening to the show. It's got to be a bass player. A drummer wouldn't. A drummer doesn't have any idea. A drummer would be like, huh? I don't know. Did microphones. you, John Roderick, claim that it's harder to to mic an amplified bass guitar because of the longer waveform? Did I claim that it's harder to mic a bass guitar because of the longer waveform? I, I guess it means that the waves are such that they're not reaching the like actually the waves are feet apart yeah they so are. they're hitting different parts of the audience in different ways is that is that it's certainly what's going on here? it certainly uh is an effect that happens in live music it's an effect that happens in you know in the when you're in a recording studio and listening to the bass did i say that microphones had a hard time picking up bass? I have no recollection. I don't... I, I remember I know we were talking they, about which... What stuff goes through the PA and what stuff goes through its own amp. I remember that. Yeah. W- typically these days... I'm not a, a fan lo- of our own show. I, I don't... <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of bass guitar is recorded directly into the board, but we also use microphones on amplifiers. That's very commonplace. Anyway, what does our bass player friend say? What's his problem? He's been playing bass professionally for almost 50 years. Wow. Okay, so... Wow. Is that who's listening to... Omnibus? Yeah, people. 75-year-old bass players? <laughs> yes. Here, here, sir. I Now uh, I is, support everything you say. I know. Like, the, I, I had no idea our audience was actually cool. The low, he says the low E on a bass guitar is rough, is roughly 41 hertz, which would make, are, do you have perfect pitch? Is no, that a low not e? at all. That's probably really far off. <laughs> uh, anybody that's listening to the show that can, that can gauge how far off I was from an E. Take out your pitch boom, pipe boom, act. Boom, boom, boom. The first, cor- the first five correct answers will boom, be entered in. A drawing boom, boom, boom. to win John's base. Uh, so by his math, that would make the length, the wavelength, twenty-eight feet. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's the right. low E, the 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 peaks of the waveform are twenty-eight, 28 feet, eight apart. feet apart. But he doesn't. But that doesn't mean you have to be twenty-eight feet from the amplifier no, to hear the frequency. That's ridiculous. Okay. Although, I mean, if you think about yourself at a rock club. Uh, if you're at the front of the stage, you are a lot closer to the bass guitar than 28 feet. Uh, certainly, in a in a in a little rock club, you might be 12 feet from the bass. But that it doesn't mean sometimes the wave is going to go right over your right head. right over your head. 
it'll just hit the guy behind you? It, well, it hits the back wall and then comes at you from behind. Oh, I see. So you do hear it like, what? eventually. Yeah, you, you hear it, but like th- four milliseconds behind the rest of the band. You might be hearing solos that Brian played 50 years ago. That's why That's why uh, rock bands often sound like this. Because the music's really coming from the back wall. It was originally called Lorb and Roll. <laughs> Lorb and Roll. Before Alan Freed changed <laughs> Lorb, it. Lorb, Lorb. So anyway, Brian is a is an old-time bass player, and he says 28 feet is the low E. And then what? Oh, uh, to me, I think that was about it. That was it? That was the comment? <laughs> uh, he says it is more common today to send the bass directly to the PA, but he doesn't say why. And he says both things are an option. You, you just use a, a specialty mic if you're going to mic your bass, like maybe the same kind you would use for a bass drum. Well, even these mics that we're recording into, the SM7B, is, uh, is a mic that could be used for that purpose. Do you ever think maybe we should just, instead of recording a show, we should just maybe, you could just play noodle on bass for for an hour and 10 minutes? Or beatbox? I should do the kick drum and you should do the snare. We've got a thing in our, I was, I was just reading about how, um, you know, for David Byrne's Broadway show, American Utopia, he wanted the, all the musicians just be dancing, choreographed, you know, because he, he why, why were you doing dancing like the motion around the of stage? A player? Because he wants the drummer to be in the choreography as well, and to do that, that means you need basically one drummer for each kind of drum. Because there's no kit you can carry around the stage without looking like Dick Van Dyke's one man band gear from Mary Poppins. <laughs> huh? So I guess there's one bass drum guy patrolling the stage, and then one snare guy, and then one hi hat guy. Well, it's just mar- standing standard marching band stuff. Right? Basically, yes. He he turned a drum kit into a marching band. That's cool. I'm into that. David Byrne. Entry 1412.MT1225. Certificate number 15899. Washington, CSA. Now, this didn't occur to me because, you know, this is a show we released in mid-October. Right. Which means we must have recorded it... In July. Yeah, in July or August or something, because we were running pretty far ahead then. Uh, I had not thought about it lately, but if if you'll remember, this is a show about the fears surrounding Lincoln's inauguration in 1861, that in the, in the months leading up to his inauguration, uh, rumors begin to swirl that outside rowdies are going to pour into Washington, D.C. in advance of the inauguration to dispute Lincoln's winning the election— and in fact, convince uh, John Breckinridge, not to, you know, the sitting vice president, not to certify the results of the election, thereby installing him, maybe the sitting vice president, as the uh, new president of the republic, and and you know basically stopping the steal of the country away from uh, this you know, illegitimate winner, Mr. Lincoln. This all seems weirdly familiar to me. Yeah, it didn't even occur to me in but January. Didn't we talk this is about not unlike what recently right. happened. But didn't we didn't we uh didn't you pick this episode and didn't we talk about it with a certain amount of prescience? Uh even though it seemed completely unlikely that this would happen, but we, yeah. we picked it because an election was coming and I this felt so. like a contentious I remember picking election ties for yeah. that reason, just yeah. because you know, there was, it was, stuff was in the air. But yeah, Brian, uh, Connie and Taku, we had two different listeners say, hey, I just happened to listen to this episode right now. And uh, it's a little scarier now than when you record. Because, you know, right down to the, 
the rumors that outside people are going to come up mm-hmm. and storm the Capitol and, uh, you know, which side would the military be on? And there's all this local DC police. What are they going to do? You know, and, and what happened then, of course, is that Winfield Scott, the, kind of the universally respected general of the armies, uh, took charge and made sure that nothing happened. But, you know, as we know in our era, the Pentagon did not respond for hours to repeated calls by the D.C. National Guard that wanted to, or Maryland National Guard, to local National Guard that, who wanted to send in troops. Right. So we needed Winfield Scott. We, I say that all the time. I said that to my kid earlier tonight. She was like, and I said, well, why don't you call Winfield Scott? That It really is the the standard parenting reply that the child can That's say right. nothing to. It shuts up every kid. Entry 351.AC2830, certificate number 25380, Dingbat Apartments. Graham from Vancouver uh, remember A town full of dingbat apartments. Well, he listened to your uh, description of the Vancouver Special, yes, which is kind of a, a, a l- low variation cost, on the theme. Ugly housing. I, I can't remember. It has the it has the the carport underneath. Mm-hmm. Is that is mm-hmm. that right? Um, he wanted to tell us more about this, not to not because he thought you were disparaging. Oh, it wasn't a correction. Van- it was just a celebration. Well, I think it's a. It's a correction motivated by a celebratory spirit. Okay. It's a correct abrasion. A correct abrasion. Uh, <laughs> he uh, lets us know that Vancouver specials are not apartments like dingbats are. They're usually single-family homes or duplex, duplexes. Duplices? I think of them as duplexes. Duplices? Duplices. They're, du- they're duplicitous houses. I do feel I, – when I see one in my mind, I think of it as a duplex. Uh, he says that, you know, they were so ubiquitous between the mid sixties to the mid eighties of Vancouver, Vancouver, that something like a third of all his friends grew up in Vancouver specials. There were five on his block. Uh, he wants us to know that they were actually created out of spite. Really? They were the brainchild of a local draftsman named Larry Cudney who hated architects and kind of (laughs) thought they represented a certain kind of elitism and indulgence. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and what he and his idea was that the family home should be as functional and yes. as affordable as possible because you get more people into housing. Another democratizer who is creating a hellscape. <laughs> well, that's an interesting <laughs> question because these houses were immediately derided right. and blamed for, you know, there goes the neighborhood. Here's more of these ugly houses marching in. Uh, and, you know, Graham tells us that to this day, they're a hiss and a byword among a certain age group and up among Vancouverites. But he says that really the longer lasting effect of them is that they were half the cost of a traditional house. You know, they got, that was the last time in the history of Vancouver when working class, low income immigrant families could actually buy a house and then raise a generation, a family in, you know, for immigrant families, often a multi-generational family and kind of create the multi-general wealth and legacy that comes with, home ownership. And so I guess there's a reappraisal of the Vancouver special going on, whereby, you know, to critique the hellscape they create represents, I guess, a kind of privilege of being the kind of person that could buy a house anyway. I mean, that's always been true. If you think about mid-century modern uh, style, the Levitt towns and the, the, the prefabricated neighborhoods, that was all driven by the exact same principle of making home ownership available to all these 
returning veterans. Um, when my when my grandpa used to warn me that we shouldn't move into certain Seattle suburbs because people who live there couldn't even get store credit. Right. That's exactly what he was talking yeah. about. Cinder block homes for GI Bill families. And before that, tenement buildings. I mean, there's yep. always and and now it's the argument for. Um, you know, really a lot of shoddy construction practices is like, well, what are you, some kind of fancy person that wants windows that open? No, these houses are here for the regular Joe. I mean, there's always a there's always that justification for, you know, to make housing affordable. But when it's purely aesthetic, you know. But it isn't. I mean, a Vancouver special is also badly made in addition to being unattractive. I guess if the question is— That's the thing about dingbat apartments, are, are, right? They're They're not just— um, they're not just not attractive. They're also so you still hate functional. the Vancouver special, even if no so I, many I, delicious uh, Chinese and Greek meals were served in them. I feel like there's a lot of love for Levitt towns too uh, among the people that grew up in them because they had the experience of a neighborhood. But it's kind of like all the kids that went to punk punk rock uh, youth centers in the 1990s. They credit those. They credit punk rock with saving their lives, but a lot of times it's just that they're not 14 anymore. And so they survived, but it's not it, it's not necessarily because punk rock saved their life. It's because they just grew up and stopped believing in a death cult. You would only be giving more delight to Larry Cudney, who I guess was a real son of a bitch and just loved, <laughs> loved, loved, loved people uh, just who were disgusted at his work because he thought that meant... You know, that he'd done it right because uh, he created something where ex- no extra cost went to looks. I mean, I think it's the ultimate question of are homes about inside space or outside space? I mean, yeah. Char- Charles Mudede did a wonderful article many years ago about the prevalence of houses in Seattle that have a garage facing the front street. I remember it because m- my wife hates those. Do you remember this? Yeah. It was a, it was just a, just an interesting article in The Stranger. But what his article said was there are no stoops to these houses. And so when you walk around these neighborhoods, these new houses, all you see is the, is the wall. They're places to be driven to, yeah. And from the standpoint of somebody growing up in that house, they may feel like, wow, this is, was an amazing environment. These houses afforded us all this square footage for less cost. But from the standpoint of a community, of a neighborhood, uh, what the house is, what the form does is destroy a sense of, a, of you know, that, that a house faces the street and, and creates a neighborhood. And it should have, a, you know, the, a child's drawing of a house is a happy face. Right. You know, it, the, the windows are eyes. But if the ground floor of your house is a carport. The house is screaming. It's, it's screaming and there's no there there. So, I mean, I understand that there's the, the, the reappraisal and the kind of like, the the uh, the argument that the, these houses are democratizing and that they make home ownership available to a wider you know spectra, I mean that's all true, but it's only because you don't know the alternative, yeah. which was this house built f- and made available, you know, built so that home ownership was cost effective, but that the house itself also. It doesn't cost more. Through to, other means. Gov- yeah. You know, government, perhaps government subsidies. Well, no, the or, house itself, you can just design a house with a front porch instead of a house with a driveway underneath it. You know, and it's it doesn't cost more or less. It's not that it's not that having a door on the ground floor costs more. It's just that he, he was arguing that his architectural style 
defeated these highfalutin guys that were making really expensive homes. That it's not a one to it's not a choice between like either you buy a million dollar house or you have a shit box. Yeah, the million like, dollar houses are still getting built. Yeah, you can build a, an attractive and you know reasonably scaled and affordable house that isn't. Well, can you upward. like right now the tyranny in Seattle? And this is, I guess, this has nothing to do with working class people at all because it's present day Seattle. But I assume this is true in other cities. You've got the 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 tyranny of the square footage, right? Where people are just building the biggest possible footprint they can, lot line to, to maximize every dollar. And as a result, you get kind of ugly dominoes or cubes um, because that's how you get more. Square footage, and I got to admit, like I live in a house that's not particularly pretty from the outside because it was built to maximize square footage, interior space, and that's something you know we like. It. You know, with two people working at home, that's something we like about it. But uh, man, you know what? The greatest thing about our house is that we live inside it, and we're the only people in the neighborhood have don't, to look at don't it. have to see it. <laughs> well, and the flip side is now there are these buildings that are trying to maximize occupancy. And there are these efficiency apartments where you have to fold the toilet down to get into bed. And you can make the same argument. Look at all these people that we can get into homes. Right. Um, But Into their cubicles. You know, there is a certain kind of person that wants to live in a place like that because they don't want want to have to um, pick a different pair of clothes every day. It keeps them, you know, it allows them to live in the city affordably. But there are always going to be people that are forced into those apartments. And yeah. that's not how they want to live. We, we don't have good tenement nostalgia. Yeah, and and uh, but you know maybe later that turns. It's just that there there are housing theories abounding, and they all are social engineering theories ultimately. Um, and then there are builders who are just going for it and trying to make money. Uh, and you know, hopefully, the twain meet in houses that create livable wor- a livable world. Entry 032.MT2436, certificate number 13818, Allegheny time. It's got too many syllables. <laughs> Steve, just as a quick erratum, Steve wants us to know that the Providence and Worcester Railroad mentioned uh, in the episode did not connect two cities in Rhode Island, which I think I implied or said. Yeah. Maybe I was thinking of Woonsocket? Yeah. Uh, he says, no, this is Worcester, Massachusetts. And of course that makes sense. Sure. A railroad connecting two points in Rhode Island is not much of a railroad. <laughs> <laughs> Although in the early days of railroading, you know, they... Yeah, maybe that was the longest railroad the in America. Yeah. Um, but uh, an interesting note from uh, Marty on Facebook pointed out that, I think in the episode I said that, you know, we talked about how a lot of these time zone changes were brought about by collisions. Right. You know, trains that needed pinpoint synchronized time schedules. And I think I said something like, you know, back then there was just a single track. And it was pointed out to me that this is definitely a sign of my urban upbringing, that I assume there to be tracks in both directions. Because even today, apparently, for most of the American railroad system, and I'm sure you knew this, uh, there aren't. There tracks. are not yeah. tracks in both directions. Right. That's something you would get, um, you know, in high traffic places where there's urban rail, for example, or you know, someplace where you would see sidings. But no, for for most of the railroad system today, trains are going both ways on a single track, and you've got to time everything right with 
what sightings and stations and whatnot if yeah. you don't want them to hit each other. Well, and and there's a hierarchy of trains, and certain trains have uh, who is the head of the hierarchy? Have priority. Who is the prime mover of trains? Is it Thomas? Well, that is, is Thomas the train god. No, Thomas is Tom, Thomas, as you know, just uh, just is happy to toil. Uh, no, within the, within the hierarchy of trains, you know, you would think it was Amtrak, but it's not. Um, that makes sense. There are, I know, but based on your experience on Amtrak. Well, just, you know, follow the money. Uh, but yeah, within, you know, within the railroad operations, all those, all those people sitting behind those in that room with the giant, uh, map of all the switches and the little lights going that you see in the movie Silver Streak, where it's like, wait a minute, it's on the wrong. You're right. Um, but my experience of of spending a lot of time on trains um, is that riding on freight trains, you often get sidelined and sit there for a while. And is that because you're waiting for somebody to go yeah. the other way on the same track? Yeah, they pull you over and you just sit there until the train that has precedence over you uh, goes huckledy buck past you. So you really learn, um, like there were, uh, like I got on a freight one time that was just carrying supplies for the railroad, um, cement ties and, you know, equipment to build more railroad. Whoa. It's like a Metatrain Snowpiercer. It was crazy. Right. And, uh, and I found like a great place to ride in, in this stack of, of concrete railroad ties that felt like very secure until it occurred to me like, wait a minute, in a derailment, <laughs> this is all going everywhere. This is like pickup sticks. But but on this trip that I took from Spokane to uh, Gunnison, Colorado or whatever, uh, this train pulled over for every single other train. It was the lowest ranking train on the network. And I really felt it after a while, like, wow, this train does not measure up in terms of, you know, every other train went by and not only went by, but it was like, ha, ha. you're on you the hobo it. local. You could hear it in the horn. Ha, ha. What characterizes to you a train that is going huckledy buck? I got to know. Those, um, you know, container, it seems like those long trains with like refrigerated containers on them oh, right. are really hauling. Uh, but I bet you it's just if you if it's, you, it's white trains, right? It's all the it's, it's all, all the, it's the nukes. It's the nuclear waste trains. I bet you if you're some if you're a big player if you're if you're Chevrolet and you're bringing or Toyota and you've just offloaded a bunch of Rav fours and you're bringing them to dealers across America, you pay a little extra. Get out of my way! And here it comes. Flour and shale oil. Yeah, exactly. But like a coal train, nobody's waiting for it at the other end. I don't know. I mean, it'd be interesting to do some research and see. The hierarchy of trains. Yeah, I'm going to start looking that up. Entry 1076.PS7208. Certificate number 27531. The River of Doubt. Teddy Roosevelt, uh, post-presidency, and his son Kermit. Kermit, Kermit the First. Lead an expedition into the South American jungle. Uh, we heard from a couple people, Mike and no, Billy and Mike both pointed out that, uh, at some point, one of us said something about how, you know, this is the first adversity, uh, you know, a wealthy aristocrat like Teddy Roosevelt has ever faced. And they both mentioned the same day, Valentine's day, 1884. Do you know the story? 
Valentine's Day of 1884. Did Teddy Roosevelt get his heart broken on a dude ranch in uh, in Montana? It ended up putting him on. This is the only reason he wound up on a dude ranch in Montana. You know, Teddy Roosevelt's two years raising cattle in the Dakotas were a result of the events of February 14th. He was a New York State uh, legislator who gets summoned home due to a typhoid uh, epidemic where he finds that his uh, mother has died. Oh, no. And oh dear, this is this is what makes it a, a day to remember. Uh, his wife Alice has also died, but not of typhoid. She's died of a, a kidney ailment called Bright's disease on the same day. On the same day, so get home from work, and your wife and your mother are dead. Oh, that put me right on a dude ranch. He, uh, yeah, and his wife had just given birth to his. Infant daughter, Alice. Who also died. No, Alice survived. Of UFOs. But Teddy Roosevelt having the worst day of all bad days, you know, especially for a, yeah, yeah. you know, who, what does a guy in the 1880s love more than his wife and his mother? His he's, daughter. He's probably in the parlor singing songs about his yeah, mother. I bet you're right. They all sat around a piano. Singing songs about mother. And so, he, as you can imagine, as a person of any era would be, he is devastated. He leaves politics immediately takes Alice out west and uh, raises cattle for a wow. couple of years until he's ready to face the world again. And it occurs to me, this should be maybe a play. Yeah. Right? Like R- Roosevelt. No, we should pitch this to these guys that are making TV shows out of out of uh, podcast topics. Roosevelt in the Dakotas. Uh-huh. It could be. He, is Starring it, Ryan Gosling. Is it a sad mood piece or is Rachel McAdams out there and he has a little uh, gingham romance? Well, somehow he put it all back together and came back and became president of the United States. So that's how you end the film. I don't know. It's, you know, the making of Teddy Roosevelt. Huh. Young, young, sexy Roosevelt. Yeah, it's like young Indiana Jones, except... Who, who do you see as young, sexy Roosevelt? Is Harry Styles? Is looks this, like, uh, yeah, right. It should be... You know what? We should cast an Asian actor. I like it. Because representation matters. Randall Park is Teddy Roosevelt in Dakota Blizzard. Entry... 879.2C1125, certificate number 37850, Otokichi. You mentioned the Jesuits in the uh, Otokichi I entry. find a way to mention the Jesuits. As, as you as are wont to do. Mm-hmm. But we heard from two other Jesuit-educated listeners. Okay. Uh, the, the, maybe Mike the and worst Matt. kind of people to write in. Oh, Michael and Matt. How weird that they would be edu- uh, Jesuit educated. Was there? Is there also a Peter and a Paul? Uh, probably. Yeah. Mike and Matt both had the same bone to pick. Uh, you either said or implied that the Jesuits were founded by Francis Xavier. Because, and I'm sure it's because you were talking about the, you know, Xavier, famously the missionary to Asia. We were discussing discussing early Christianity in Japan. Right. And uh, in fact, Mike and Matt want us to know, you know, there was a founding class of initial Jesuits, of which Francis Xavier was one. Right. But the the true founder of the Jesuits was Ignatius of Loyola. Ignatius of Loyola, right. So I I Namesake of uh, Ignatius J. Riley. And of Loyola Marymount. And I defended you to these people. I said, look, look, Francis Xavier and Ignatius of Loyola became Jesuits at the exact same time. They had a little, they had a little ceremony when they created the order. Right. How can you say that one is the founder and one is not? It's like two twins, but one's born first. They should, exactly. They should certainly be, anyway, Ignatius of Loyola, apparently first among equals. And uh, we would like to apologize 
to the Society of Jesus. I, I'm surprised that I made that mistake, but uh, but you know that um, you should have stayed at Gonzaga longer. I should have. I mean, I, I I had all this stuff memorized, but uh, but I must have forgotten some of it recently. Did you know that um, that our most recent lieutenant governor Cyrus Habib Cyrus Habib has renounced politics and gone into the Jesuit uh, novitiate. Yeah, if you look up famous Jesuits on Wikipedia, he is the final, the chronologically final one. He the, might be the, the big boss, the ultimate Jesuit to beat. The, the most well, recent famous Jesuit. Once you've defeated Gerard, poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, you face Cyrus <laughs> Habib in the endgame. Well, he's unlikely, I think, to, uh, to do as badly as some of the earlier Jesuits in the United States. So I'm I'm rooting for him personally. Somebody suggested that he and I start a book club where we read the Bible, and uh, and I support that too. Entry one two zero dot two K zero one zero eight certificate number one seven seven four two Bigfoot hoaxers. Uh, I could not not tell the story that a listener named Nathan relayed to us about the Sasquatches of the Louisiana Bayou. Oh, tell us more. I guess not the Bayou. This is going to take place in West Louisiana near the Texas border. Uh, Apparently in late 2000, there was a rash of people in Nathan's parish, which I will not mention by name. Why not? uh, As you will, from current uh, succeeding events, we'll make it clear why I don't want to pinpoint where this is. This all sounds like a Jerry Reed song so far. (laughs) Uh, He says, news made it as far as news outlets in Shreveport about Uh the the, uh, Bigfoots appearing in the pine forests of western Louisiana. All the way out to Shreveport. He was uh, an 18-year-old resident living nearby, and uh, he doesn't remember it causing much of a local... Stir because there was also a, a recent sighting of the Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. So they were on a piece of toast. The residents were used to to odd visitations. Uh, he went to a he went to his high school winter dance uh, with a girl, which makes me wonder why he's listening to Omnibus. She but, turned out to be a Bigfoots. <laughs> on his way home, they're driving down a dark highway, and they come around a curve and they see a tall brown Bigfoot shaped thing walking in long strides away from the highway towards the woods. He, t- he, he asks his day, did you see that? They had both seen it. Should we go back? She thinks they did. So they turn the car around, and there's no Bigfoot. But they do see the back of a vehicle. So he turns around again, and just as he's coming back for the third time, he sees a vehicle just behind the tree line turn on its lights. Right. And uh, and he sees it's, it's a minivan. Bigfoot apparently drives a minivan. Uh-huh. Uh, and the van pulls away, so he gives chase to oh, Bigfoot and his minivan. How exciting. They're on a dirt road, so nobody This doesn't sound like an omnibus listener at all. This sounds no, like a detective. Well, he's got a girlfriend. Yeah. If nothing else. So they're going 20 miles an hour on dirt roads. High-speed chase. Uh, and when the, at one point, there's, a, there's a, a very sharp turn, almost a switchback, and he can see inside the minivan, and he recognizes the faces he saw, their uh, brothers at his a pair of brothers at his high school. It's nice to live in a small town. You can debunk the big feats right away. So when they head back to the highway, he he heads into town to drop off his girlfriend. It's still 2000, so he doesn't have a cell phone. So he, nothing develops until the following Monday at school 
when a guy comes up to him at lunch and says, hey, did you see us Saturday night? Uh, yeah, I did. He says, you're not going to tell anybody, right? Because Aaron's been putting on that suit and scaring locals. And so we, we, we all thought it would be fun to go with him over the weekend. And uh, Nathan said he would, he would not tell the secret. The funny thing is the Aaron he mentions is not a high school student. The kids he recognized were the sons of Aaron, who is the local police chief. Who is a big guy. He yeah. said, taller and broader than John. Oh, wow. He's kind of negging you. But anyway, oh, wow. you know, the perfect guy in, in this parish to dress up as a Bigfoot in, you know, in rural Louisiana. So he agreed never to tell anyone until he told international uh, famous person Ken Jennings on his widely listened to podcast. I said, do you mind if we consider this for an addenda show? And he said he would be honored. So I don't think we're going to have... I don't think we're going to run afoul of law enforcement the next time we're in central Louisiana. Well, not for this reason. It's because <laughs> it's because we've got a bale of weed in our trunk. But uh, this was 21 years ago. Yes. And uh, today, he says, Aaron's son. Oh, no, he has, of, of his two sons involved in this Sasquatch prank, one today runs a Sasquatch-themed restaurant, and the other has been on... Uh, Finding Bigfoot on Animal Planet because of all his the Bigfoot sightings he was eager to report. Oh, they've to the turned Animal it into Planet a family business. Yes, and his and the father is now the sheriff of the parish. So that's fantastic. I, I guess I've probably given enough information there to track down some intrepid omnibi will will find it. But uh, yeah, so really another nail in the coffin of the Louisiana mm. Bigfoot industry that mm. we now have the real scoop. Thank you, Nathan. The three, the three of our primary sources are all, uh, are all Bigfoot profiteers. Entry 548.JM0304, certificate number 38646. The Great Tea Race. I thought this was interesting. We heard from Angus, who I believe is the one who requested the show, the Patreon supporter who requested the show. He noted in the uh, Facebook Futurelings group, I think I had said during the show that this was right before the Suez Canal was about to open, which meant that steamships could now just take weeks off of the time of a clipper ship between Asia and Europe. Uh, he pointed out something that I didn't mention during the show, which is that during the race between these four clipper ships between China and London, while they were grabbing the world's headlines, a steamship called the Earl King left China after they all did and plowed into London and arrived two weeks before the photo finish among the four clipper ships. Really? So even at that time, even without the uh, truly a, a the Suez Canal moment. shortcut, yeah, and I don't think it was widely reported on because everybody was following the... Yeah, yeah. So the steamship just just like passed them at some point in the night and beat them by two weeks. Yeah, and they but they didn't get the bonus because they you know the bonus had already been negotiated between the clipper ship companies as a you know a little a bit of flair a right. frill for the for the first owner. And I Angus also pointed out that because all four ships arrived close together, you know the the high price of tea in London for the for the first tea of the season is based on their, the idea that there's going to be only one shipload. And the fact that all four basically arrived in this photo finish so close to each other really tanked the price of tea. <laughs> <laughs> there was so much tea that all these merchants ended up taking a huge loss and selling the, right. you know, losing money on every tea leaf they sold. Um, and that's why they had agreed ahead of time to... Uh, you know, to split the prize money between the ships. And that's, and they never gave that prize again because 
it had incentivized right uh, to flood the market simultaneous arrival. We also uh, heard from Mike. I think Mike often fact checks the show. This same Mike. I think this is. I don't know. There's not just one Mike, but if you hear us mentioning Mike, I think there's a fifty fifty chance it's this guy defending the uh, the er, the uh, honor of the Erie Canal. Oh, really? Mike, you're going to defend the Erie Canal? I think when I mentioned that, you know, the clipper ship reached its apogee right before the age of steam, you pointed out that, well, the Erie Canal wasn't, uh, you know, didn't do that much because railroads immediately followed it. And Mike wants us to know that the Erie Canal opened in 1824 and peaked in 1855, and it took took 30 years for it to start to decline. Oh, okay. Um, Well, that's a reasonable commentary. It's not so bad. And, And even during the age of rail, you know, it continued to carry... Cargo, because I think it was less expensive than putting everything on rail cars. Right. Slower. Um, yes. Uh, and it competed with railroads into the 20th century. The, the You know, there's still the barge canal today that carries a lot of cargo. Right. So not a, not a folksy dead end. We shouldn't right. have implied that. Yeah, I guess I didn't, uh, I did, you know, that it's easy to compress 30 years into nothing from the you from know, now. from the vantage point of 200 years later. But, but yeah, of course, 30 years would have been, 30 years before the railroad even even began. I mean, if you told, a, if a business was making a big billion dollar investment today and you said, I don't know, this is only going to give you a market advantage for 30 years, yeah, right. they would still jump at it. Sure. That's sure. why I own so much Bitcoin. Well, well done. Thank you, uh, Mike, for that, for that addenda. First of many. Entry 1370.PS10618. Certificate number 43485. The Universal Studios Fire. Some fun responses here. Oh, it's such a fun event. Which, <laughs> good times. Smelled like King Kong's banana all over the valley. <laughs> this is a very weeks. recent episode. Yeah, we've, we've moved up in time yeah. quite a bit. Uh, uh, we mentioned, I think, that Johnny Carson's, all of the early Carsons were taped over by NBC to the degree that almost no Johnny exists before 1972. Like, if you want to see the Beatles on Carson, it's basically audio tapes or 16 millimeter of home fans pointing a camera at their TV show and or running a reel-to-reel tape. Wait, the Beatles were on Johnny Carson's show? Jo- John and Paul were guests. Oh, I see, I see. The band did not play. Um Maybe they did stand up and got asked over to the couch. Yeah, that's right. They, were, they did a little bit of a punch and Judy. <laughs> we had a, they did one of those uh, British uh, Christmas pantos. <laughs> I don't know who was Peter Pan and who was Captain Hook. Wait, yes, I do. Uh, Don also pointed out that the Mike Douglas show does exist on tape, but in fact will probably be lost because no one cares enough to digitize it. What? Uh, Mike Douglas, of course, you know, maybe. Forgo- had, comparatively forgotten, but, you know. He had incredible guests. Sure. You're saying that it, it is there still, but it's just never going to, nobody's going to say like, wow, Ruth Buzzy in her third appearance on the Mike Douglas Duff- Exactly. Show. There's there's no money in it. So I guess what we should be saying is we are looking for a corporate partner to invest in the digitization of the Mike Douglas show with us. And if Buddy Hackett uh, happens to reveal on any of those <laughs> shows the location of any hidden treasure... Or if, um, uh, you know, Phyllis, or Anita Bryant says something terrible on one of the shows and there's money to be made in canceling her again, 
you know, you would share in all those profits. It's hard to say how to monetize the digital Mike Douglas show, but I think it can be done. I mean, it's crazy that, uh, well, it just feels like, what is all this going to be in 20 years? Like right now, I still am watching Dean Martin on the Carson show on YouTube, but my daughter's never going to do it. She's never, ever, ever once going to go on YouTube to watch uh, to well, watch Dean Martin on the Carson show. Not with that attitude. But if they, but but the, all this material is out there. It's it's got to be remixed and cut up. People are going to turn it into stuff. I mean, it's it's how much of this digital stuff is going to be. I mean, I'm talking about the stuff from the 20th century that we're that we're so desperate to bring into the internet. Yeah. Because otherwise, well, if we don't get this in there. But we're the last people who would care. Who cares, right? It's like, like all the people. Right now, if you go to buy a Model T, I think we talked about this on a recent episode. We did. Like the it bottom, hasn't come out yet, but yeah, we did. The bottom has fallen out of the Model T market. Uh, it turns out that the night that John and Paul were on the Carson show, Johnny Carson was not there. Oh, right. There was a guest host, Jar, uh, Joe Garagiola. <laughs> I saw that. Was there. Do you think it's the only time any of the Beatles met Joe Garagiola? Uh, why would they? I mean, why would they have even agreed to do that uh, to not meet Johnny? Maybe Johnny wasn't that big of a deal. Like, he's less iconic then because yeah. he's relatively new. When did you take over for Jack Parr? Early 60s, right? Yeah, yeah. 60, 62? 60, yeah, 63, maybe. Something like that. Yeah. And uh, maybe they were excited to meet Joe Garagiola. I mean, what, what Bell and do, Sebastian loves Mike Piazza. Maybe all British rock groups just love baseball catchers. Well, who was Joe Garagiola? What uh, did he do? A, a baseball player turned commentator. Oh, commentator. Catcher for the... Oh, I was wrong. I was going to say Yankees, but actually, Cards, Pirates, Cubs, and Giants. Colorful. Uh, I think via the Today Show became a I see a popular panelist commentator type. Crazy. Uh, and uh, hung out with John and Paul more than you or I ever will, and more than Johnny did apparently. <laughs> I did not during that same episode. I did not know what uh, the numbers are called in the sequence that goes. One, three, six, ten, fifteen, twenty-one. If you add one plus two plus three plus four plus five, I briefly said they were factorials, and that's not true. That seems like something you would know. I did know it, and I was annoyed when Jesse pointed out there's an easy number. They're called the answer. They're called triangular numbers oh. because they're the number of dots that would be in an, a, an equilateral triangle. You know, one in the first row, two in the second, three in the third four in the fourth, and so on. They have many interesting properties that I am uh, not going to get into. All right. Yeah. Uh, and fair enough, right? We also heard from Michael, who recently had a run-in with the Universal Studios fire. Oh, I sent you this. He was um, he enjoyed the Dave Mason, the uh, album Alone Together by Dave Mason of Traffic. This is an incredible story. From the mid-70s. Thinks it's an underrated record. He was trying to find it on Apple Music, and when he ended up listening to Alone Together Again, which he thought was just going to be a recent remaster. It turns out that in 2020, Dave Mason re-recorded Alone Together, the entire album, because the masters had been destroyed in the Universal Fire. Wow. And it was for uh, Michael, it was Bader Meinhof, because he had not heard of the Universal Fire until a recent listen to <laughs> Omnibus. <laughs> Uh, oh, cool. So the Taylor Swift thing, but I guess just to get high-quality masters of it back? Yeah, right. I mean, I don't know. It seems almost like a 
there's as a recording artist, it's such a weird world. Why not? I guess if you're sitting around looking for reason to go back in the Especially studio, if you're a nostalgia act, like, I mean, Taylor Swift's really got to carve a, a week out of her schedule. If she wants to re-record red or whatever. Right. But although I'm, it's going to sure represent Dave, millions to her. So why not? Exactly. Uh, that pencils out, but I'm sure Dave Mason has time. <laughs> Exactly. Get the guys back together. We'll do it again. For reasons too obscure to go into here, I was recently trying to listen to America's Greatest Hits album on Apple Music yeah. or maybe on Amazon on some streaming service. You were in the desert. You had a horse with no name. I think I was literally, you're joking, but I think I was literally on Ventura Highway. Oh, sure. And so I wanted to hear the song Ventura yeah. Highway in the in sunrise. The sun, shine, rise, sun, sun, sunshine. Rise. No, it has to rhyme with moonshine. So it yeah. is sunshine. You're right. Uh, I was America, not. I was not chewing on a piece of grass walking down the road. It, it doesn't have to rhyme uh, because America. Uh, some of their lyrics are among the worst lyrics in rock history. There are plants and birds and rocks and things. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard alligator lizards in the air. <laughs> in the air. Anyway, I, I try to listen to this song, and there's something subtly wrong about it. Oh, okay. and it turns out that America, for some reason, re-recorded their whole. Greatest hits record in, uh, on the 40th anniversary of it. Just, just did it as a larker for one of these publishing reasons. I don't know if they had a publishing reason. I, I have not been able to find, I looked and I could not find anybody saying they had any kind of rights reason to do it. What a weird thing. Well, the problem is, and I'm sure this is true of Dave Mason's recent attempt, is your voice does not sound in 2011 like it did in 1971. Well, and none of the stuff is the same. And you also can't possibly resist the impulse to just make it a little better, inevitably making it a little worse. Like, oh, if we just put a little bit more, I always wanted there to be a little bit more reverb on, you know, every little bit, it would be impossible to duplicate a recording. But I will stick up for America. Which, the band? Ironically or the enough. country. Only the only the band. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'll stick up for the country. America, the country has produced many bad lyrics as well. Hmm, yeah, um, I can't disagree. But you know, they did seven albums in a row with George Martin. Right. I mean, Sister Golden Hair Surprise. Uh, it's great, terrible lyric though. But, yes, but great. But who song. cares? Yeah, like it's not well. like, like which seventies rockers are you in for the lyrics? Who cares? Lonely people. Oz didn't give nothing to the Tin Man. Yep. Again, I feel like you don't you get. About? You never get to. You wouldn't get to the National or My Morning Jacket or any of these kind of AM Gold bands without America. It's true. It's true. They are the and their haircuts and beards. They're incredible. They, they, all these modern bands even look like America. It's true. I mean, that, I you, you, I cannot fault them except. That as a lyricist, the lyrics in America records, they do confirm that like lyrics don't matter argument. <laughs> I'm um, sorry, but I'm really sorry to tell you. It really hurts my feelings, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Entry 711.ex0508. Certificate number 50469. Lego minifigures. I took some heat here for pointing out that you can stand up a flat Lego plate between the studs of another brick. Oh, you you got heat for pointing it out or you got heat because you're wrong? I am right, but I got heat for uh, acting as if that's a, a, a normal or laudable practice. Michael tells me that this is, a different Michael tells me this is 
considered illegal by current Lego standards and practices. Illegal in terms of this being a stratagem. Yes. Even though there were official kits in the past where you would, you know, do that. You'd put a little thing sideways on top of the truck to make the lights or whatever. I grew up doing this. Um, but I got sent a PDF with the current rules. Oh, oh, from Lego. No, that's the thing. It's just by some guy. Oh. See, this is what I don't like. I mean, the right. C- the CDC also doesn't want you to eat eggs with runny yolks, but that doesn't mean. Yeah. It's, I've like, got a list of like, rules. What's the worst thing that could happen if I put a plate sideways between a pair of studs? Dogs I, and cats sleeping together? It's really hard to imagine what could go wrong. I mean, if I'm if I'm building a deck out of Legos. Right. And then I invite 30 people over and the deck collapses because it was just attached that way. I get it. But really, why do there have to be, why are there legal and illegal builds for, for me making a little, a car or a uh, police station? Let me say that not very long ago, the, uh, it was Chinese New Year. I thought you were going to say not too long ago it was illegal to marry someone of a different race. Not too long ago <laughs> it was illegal. That's what I think of your Lego illegality. But also, I was, uh, I was at a friend's house. It was Chinese New Year. She had purchased the very large Chinese New Year Lego set. And our afternoon was, uh, by her design, spent assembling the Lego set. And it had been a long time since I had assembled a Lego set, according to the instructions. And this was not like build a Saturn V rocket. This was a ton, ton of little, it was like a temple. There were little shops and, and food carts and there were... There were plants and birds and rocks and that's things. right. There were alligator lizards in the air. And assembling them, I was struck. I mean, it's cool the way Lego sets repurpose parts that clearly were meant for something else. And now, oh, that's what we're going to make the roof out of, these things that were part of a gear in a car. Yeah. But there were all these Legos that weren't battened down. What do you mean? Well, it's like, okay, it's a food cart, and these parts... Oh, they just sit in a box. Yeah, if you if you shake the thing, they're yes. going to fly everywhere. Yes. And I was like, there, it's Legos they should snap together. The only thing Legos do is snap together. I don't need to have a bunch of baguettes sticking out of the bread yeah, bag. Yeah, what was that all about? Said. It was very confusing. Every little part of this had something that wasn't... Well, this is what we in. talked about in that show, that you know, Lego used to be kind of a, a system of strict Scandinavian engineering. And when it became about situational play, you know, make your little, make your little, uh, sailor tromp around the port. Right. Um, everybody had <laughs> looking to, for a date. Yeah. Looking for <laughs> a, a, a construction worker or uh-huh. a leather guy. Uh-huh. Uh, then everybody needed props. Yeah. And so if you want your Lego guy to hold a frying pan, where's the frying pan going to be when it's not there? Well, you just have a little, cupboard where things bounce around that's what's wrong with the 21st century everybody's got a prop no props go back to no props what if your prop was your personality whoa uh millennials yeah what what if your prop was your education Woo. um also didn't we get yelled at a lot for pluralizing legos (laughs) or is that just a thing you don't even mention well we we said in the show that we were going to get heat for saying legos and uh i saw a lot of internet commentary it's only an americanism like no matter what language they speak european lego fans or european fans of legos will Mm -hmm. only will always say lego and they'll usually use it as a modifier this is a lego brick that's a lego set i'm playing with lego Ugh, i'm playing with lego they and uh, I can't. I can't even hear it. My ears 
my ears were burned. People were shocked that they would hear American usages on an American podcast. Legos. We play with Legos, which are a bunch of Legos. It's because in Europe they only have one. Oh, they just have the one Lego. Yeah, when you turn nine, you're given a Lego. And, and then you, you get, go across you get the to street, play with it. play with the other kid. You can it, stick it to your friend's Lego. <laughs> two now. But only in a legal formation. <laughs> this PowerPoint he sent me has like 35 slides of bad ideas of things to do with a Lego. Hmm. And I, if these are actually, I would like to hear, if these are actually endorsed by Lego in Billund, Denmark, I would like to know. But it just seems like this is some kind of fan consensus of, of bad form. Hmm. <laughs> Entry 484.EZ4030, certificate number 30320, flying through the gateway arch. Is this the first show that's a gerund? Maybe. Have we never done another that was a gerund? Uh, I'm not going to look, and I hope people write in to tell me. Flying through the gateway arch. I don't know if we talked Dreaming about... Dreaming of blue turtles. <laughs> Eating Raul. I don't know if we ever talked about flying under bridges in the flying through arches mm-hmm. entry, although it's certainly the same bad pilot impulse. Total vibe. It's a super vibe. It's a vibe. It's a mood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a big mood. I stand for flying under bridges. You are simping bridge <laughs> under flyers. Uh, it's totally T. Brett pointed out some famous incidents of people flying under bridges. One of whom, this is as recent as 1968, so you probably remember. Sure, I was there. Uh, A Royal Air Force pilot in his Hawker Hunter fighter bomber flew under the Tower Bridge to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the RAF. Under the Tower Bridge? Now, is that must mean it's over the the car bridge that elevates, but under the, the, the top part? Well, I wouldn't do that. I would not do that. It's a very small little box. I wouldn't fly under any part of it. How that. big is a Hawker Hunter fighter bomber? Uh, big enough to not mess around with now, that kind of business. Now, this was not part of the official celebration. This was not like when the, uh, you were, of course, remember when James Bond came and got the queen and they, they parachuted into the stadium. Right. This was not one of those. This was just a fighter. Just this guy hot dogging. Thinking, you know what? I, and I guess he was. <laughs> According to Brett, he, the pilot had a political motivation, disgruntled about the shift in defense priority from manned fighter to guided missiles. He kind of felt like a uh, like sure. like a constru- uh, like a assembly line worker seeing the right. robot take over. He was his like, job. "Can a guided missile do this?" And then it was like, "Well, yeah, sure, sure could." We there could are just... no photos, but as you can imagine, it is well attested by witnesses. That's yeah. a that's a busy part of the river. That would have knocked the bowler cap right off the top of your head, there, businessman. Uh, Brett says there is a picture of this other incident, but it's probably believed to be fake. But it's regarded as true that in 1965, a Soviet pilot, Brett spelled it correctly, flew his MiG-17 under a 30-meter tall bridge over the Obe River. Now, the RAF guy saw his career ended by this stunt, but I guess it tells you maybe a lot about... The, the Soviet, Soviet Air Force, that this guy became a hero. They made him a general. They made Well, they made him one of their Blue Angels guys, you know, their whatever their Goodwill Ambassador hotshot fighter plane team was uh, as a result of his pinpoint flying under this Soviet bridge, 30 meters tall. Wow. Yeah. That would be lower than, uh, than the top deck of the, the, the pedestrian walkway of the Tower Bridge. Yeah, is that right? The tower bridge is more than 90 feet above the Thames? Or at least above the second bridge. The height of the tower bridge is... 
140 feet, but that would be to the spires. So, oh. you know, actually, between the two decks of the bridge, that would be similar in similar in uh, in headroom to what this Soviet pilot did. Uh, it, it seems like a lot of it is like how fast you're going is also it. it uh, Does that make it easier or it, harder? Well, yeah, it sort of doubles the amount of, uh, well, you have a lot less room to correct. But right? le- less time to enjoy it. Oh, an ass. Less time to really just enjoy the experience of, of looking to your left, looking to your right, and uh-huh. seeing the Tower Bridge. All the people go, what? Didn't you have a, as when we were discussing this, didn't you tell me after we recorded that you had your own flying under a bridge story? Oh, well, my dad, you know, my dad flew C-47s for the Navy during World War II, and he had a, a few fantastical stories about um, landing in, uh, landing on islands and atolls that were, that were active war zones uh, where they would carve a uh, airstrip out of the jungle, but yeah. they would still be fighting. And he said that the, you know, they would park a jeep at the end of the runway if they if the Americans had control of the runway, uh, <laughs> and if the jeep wasn't there, you knew that that they didn't. And he so said, "So it's it's like uh, well, the tennis ball in your garage that tells you exactly how, how far, far you are." Or I guess it's more like the sock on your doorknob to tell you if you're in possession yes. of the dorm room or not. He uh, he said he landed on a on a strip on a little atoll, and as they were running down the the runway, a guy came running out of the jungle, jumped in the jeep, and drove off. <laughs> and <laughs> bullets started flying, hitting the plane. But one of uh, yeah, and he did, he said this happened all the time, where they would flip the plane around, and they would as they were running back down the runway, he'd be uh, or his uh, whatever his his sergeant or his uh, I guess chief would be in the back door throwing cans of ammunition out of the out of the plane trying to get back in the sky. But one of his stories was uh that they were flying uh through this canyon there was a bridge over it and the Japanese had set up an anti-aircraft gun on top of the bridge. And so in order to avoid it uh they flew under the bridge and they couldn't get the gun either they couldn't get the gun down to shoot under or they couldn't get it down in time. Or when they did, they ended up just shooting into the ground. Yeah, right. Or they shot up, <laughs> they shot up a bunch of koi that were down in a pond. But whatever. He had a, he had a lot of these stories of naval daring do. His most famous one was uh, the time that he claimed to have shot at a zero, a Japanese zero, with his sidearm, his forty-five uh, handgun. Like opened the window, stuck the gun out. Oh, from the air! From the air, because because this this zero appeared out of nowhere, and he just like shot at it out of the window, and then they went into the clouds and they avoided the they avoided getting shot down by the zero. And so he 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 leaves it open in his in his telling, or his retelling of the story that you know he might have shot the zero down. Maybe you can't can't prove that he didn't. Cannot prove he didn't. We also heard from. Oh, no, I don't have the names. One minor correction. I said that a uh, a parabola, we're talking about the St. Louis Arts. I said that a parabola is the shape that a, a ball or other projectile makes when you toss it into the air. Okay. Jake wants us all to know that that only happens if you do it in a vacuum. If there's If there's air resistance and, you know, or other variables besides gravity, the ball does not travel in a perfect... Parabola. Parabola, it follows a much more complicated path that you need differential equations to express. Um, but really, what kind of a 
peasant does he think I am throwing a ball in Earth right. atmosphere outside of outside of a vacuum where you, you think, throw all you your balls? You think I don't have a, a hyperbaric vacuum chamber where I sleep and also toss balls in the air? Come on, Jake. I can attest that he does. We uh, and one other interesting thing about that episode, you, I think we talked about the St. Louis waterfront quite a bit. Yes, I think you uh, maybe expressed its rundown nature. Well. I feel like you were a little bit down on the St. Louis waterfront. You know, a lot of my stories sort of uh, sound like I'm down on a thing, but really I celebrate it. (laughs) James uh, Davenport, who grew up near there, was talking about the waterfront revitalization of which the, you know, the... It, it, you know, it was a multi-decade project, but of which the St. Louis Arch was a big part. And he says that what happened to the waterfront between that and probably our experiences of it was a disastrous early 90s recession in St. Louis. Okay. And I had not really thought about this, but, you know, all these things happened at once in St. Louis. The end of the Cold War, NAFTA, and email taking over. What? And this was a triple disaster for St. Louis because— uh, you know, McDonnell Douglas was bought by Boeing. Right. NAFTA meant the auto industry moved out. Right. Uh, around the same time, PWA went under. And then I guess direct mail, which was a huge industry there, oh. was supplanted by email. So between those four things, it just did a number on St. Louis starting about 30 years ago. Also, craft brewing really put a dent in the old Budweiser <laughs> fortunes. <laughs> I don't know if it did. Nobody's <laughs> nobody's playing their ball games at uh, at St. Pauli Girl Park or whatever. Entry seven four nine dot two S one 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 four. Certificate number three five seven five two. Future links, you should commit those numbers to memory because it is mail trucks. Our show from September twenty fifth two thousand eighteen. Back in the news this week, big news in mail trucks. Back have in you been, the news again. Have you been following the mail trucks discourse today, uh, this week? Someone, even in my complete abandonment of social media, somehow the new mail truck design made it through all of my someone, filters. Someone sketched, carved a figure of it onto a piece of wood and ran it up to your cave. That's right. Stuck it, stuck it outside my cave and then set it on fire. But I saw it. And it is super duper 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 weird looking. I like it. Really? Yeah, but I'm it, gonna look it up right now. It looks like a Pope mobile. So, you know, when we did the original show, the the postal service was kind of in the middle of this multi year uh uh bidding contest to decide who was gonna build the new fleet of you know, a hundred thousand mail trucks because the Grumman LLVs are all long past their Factory recommended lifespan. Right. And this week, this or this Tuesday, if you're hearing this addenda in its own era, um, the Postal Service awarded its 10-year, nearly $500 million contract to Oshkosh Defense, hmm. a firm that mostly does armored military vehicles, um, to design the new mail truck it looks like it's you know some kind of electric thing of tomorrow but in fact only 10 percent of them will be electric I think. oh really oh I, that's a bummer i mean some will be battery electric the rest have very efficient internal combustion engines and can be retrofitted i guess right okay uh, maybe there's maybe just maybe the charging infrastructure needed for the u.s to maintain a fleet of a hundred thousand 
yeah. domestic high-use electric vehicles. It's Although just it not there. Like, you get all these electric vehicles, you should also do a little bit of a post office upgrade across the country. And while you're at it, put some charging stations in. Post office f- funding is kind of a sticky topic right now. Well, it sure is. What a bummer. Uh, I think that it's an unusual looking truck. I, I will agree. I, uh, I, the, the big window or the big windshield is amazing looking. That's what I like about it. it's, it's almost high enough that it's got this kind of Pope mobile vibe, uh-huh. but I think maybe because Pixar has now conditioned us to see the windshield as the windows of the soul, right. the, yeah, the eyes of the car. Whereas you and I probably grew up thinking of the headlights as the eyes of the car. I believe it now makes this look more like a f- kind of a friendly, um, you know, Mike the mail truck kind of a character. Yeah. Right? I, I was thinking about this the other day. We've been living in an era where that cab forward design where cars are are made to look sleek and aerodynamic at the expense of visibility uh, because they're, you know, low roofed and um, yeah, they have all these blind spots. It's just, you know, you're, I mean, my head touches the roof of most cars. Uh, and that wasn't always the case. And these days with... My head touches the roof of many cars. Yeah. We've been looking for something to replace our minivan. And I'm amazed. Such a bummer. At how much a 5'11 guy scrapes the roof. And I wonder how much... I mean, certain, I'm sure people have done these studies, but how much energy is really saved through the the little bits of aerodynamic efficiency in car design relative to how much easier and nicer it would be to live in a world where there were cars had big greenhouses again and there was there were windows all around and you could just have big square surfaces and it didn't everything didn't have to look like a cough drop so this this is nice i think i think cars should follow this example and just just have glass i mean the thing about the big glass greenhouse roof is it also comes with this very weirdly low uh, hood. That's the weird part. Yeah. And it, from the side, it almost looks like a little, I mean, it looks like Donald Duck from the side. It's, yeah. It it's looks got, like it's, somebody stepped on it's it. It's got a beak. Um, but why shouldn't we, like, if if the postal carrier, if the mail delivery guy can't be cute and fun, what truck can be? But you know, the you know, you think about an old milk truck from the 50s that didn't have a nose that just had a big glass window and then it went straight down, you know, box. like a, like a delivery vehicle. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it needed the little nose. Is that really where the engine is? Maybe. I bet it, well, I bet it is actually. Cause otherwise you're right. That would not be there. If you just took the little nose off of it, it would just look like a milk truck. Look how long the windshield wipers have to be for that massive. I know. Four that's, foot tall windshield. cool. What are those made of, those windshield wipers? <laughs> if you saw one of those windshield wipers in the wild, it, you would feel like you were, honey, I shrunk the kids. Well, yeah, you'd pick it up and use it as a sword. The, uh, you know, we heard from a lot of mail carriers who told us how awful the Grumman LLVs are in almost any weather. Mm-hmm. And these should be a little nicer. They all have airbags. They all have all the driver assist stuff and emergency brakes that, of course, was decades away when the Grumman LLVs were built. You know, the Grumman LLVs, I don't think, even have air conditioning. And Well, yeah, you're supposed to just drive around with your window down. You're a post, post, postal delivery person. You're, le- you're leaning out the wrong side of the car at all times. I mean, most of these vehicles never go more than 10 miles an hour. That's why they should look uh, cute. Yeah. Well, there you go. They're, they're just a slow little... Uh, it's like Mr. Rogers calling for the trolley. Yeah, they should be painted like ladybugs. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 16. 
Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus.